Welcome everybody to this new episode of the podcast uh, Coffee Breakdown. Uh, today we are here, uh, both me and uh, Aaron, and we have a new guest uh, who is uh, Renato Perillo. Renato is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, General Atomics actually, at the University of California, San Diego. And uh, today we share with us his experiences as a researcher. So thank you very much, Renato, for accepting the invitation. I'm very glad uh, that we can have this chat. Thank you guys for having me. It's wonderful also to see you and, uh, you know, to connect uh, after this couple of years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because uh, actually we met uh, at the uh, different in the Netherlands, in Eindhoven, where we were all doing our PhD in different topics, actually. Yeah. And then uh, now you move to the US and... Um, I would like to ask you, but maybe to, to start, you know, what are you doing in the US? Uh, if you can describe also your institute, what is the main research that you're dealing with? So uh, I'm uh, hired by the University of California, San Diego. Uh, however, we are on assignment at General Atomics. General Atomics is a mostly private company that uh, um, runs D3D Tokamak, which is currently the only active experimental fusion machine in the United States. So we are collaborators. So my group, which is led by this legendary guy, Jose Boedo, is, is from UCSD, but we have offices and we work daily at General Atomics itself. When there are experiments, we have our own little corner in the control room, and, you know, I think it's nice to, to underline the fact that at, G, at General Atomics, there are plenty of collaborators from all over the United States, from UCLA, Wisconsin, MIT, Princeton. So it's really a collective effort to run and to, to study what goes on at, uh, at D3D. Okay. So, so you're working at this machine, right, uh, D3D. Is it uh, operating now or is it uh, yeah. shut down? Yeah, yeah. We are in full, uh, uh, in full campaign, which started around April and then we'll go on up to, I think, September. Well, up to the end of October, but in October, uh, we will study negative triangularity stuff, which is pretty cutting edge and interesting. And uh, yeah, we will see. Uh, as experimentally, my group deals with uh, three main diagnostics, which in short are, so two of them are diagnostics to um, probe the edge part of the plasma. So the most external parts in the vicinity of the main wall and all the way down at the bottom. They are called reciprocating probes. So you have these very fast probes that goes in and out and you get radial profiles of important plasma parameters, you know, the temperature, the density, the current, and therefore you can extract nice stuff like the, the velocity. You can, do, you can do several things with that. Another diagnostics that we operate, but not me personally, is a fast camera that we use to capture literally images with very high uh, rate during plasma operations. And that is also very important and used to, for the disruption group, which is different from what we study in terms of the edge of the plasma. But yet we belong to the same UCSD um, collaboration uh, uh, deal, let's say, with General Atomics. Okay, okay. So most of the studies, so you mentioned this um, negative triangularity that for me is uh, quite, quite a new terminology. Okay, maybe Aaron can help me on that. But so from what I understood, uh, so then most of the studies there are focused, uh, well, maybe not all, all of the studies, but are focused on this uh, problem of the power exhaust in Tokamaks. That is quite a big uh, deal from what I understood. Uh, is it correct? Yeah, or? yeah well, uh, no, I mean, most of the studies is a, is a bold statement, but let's say lots of mm -hmm. efforts are put in that direction. And me, myself, and my group do indeed work on that issue. Okay. In particular, so, well, 
as you well know, fusion has so many sub uh, subjects, right? So like my boss is well known for having discovered experimentally this so-called blobby transport, where basically these turbulences in the outer part of the plasma leads to a wider heat flux footprints at the, at the floor. In, in, in few words, it basically allows the, the power exhausted to be deposited on a larger area and therefore subjecting the materials to less stress and to less power loads. However, yeah. what I'm really working on is to study the transport and the footprints of intrinsic instabilities that occur in high confinement plasmas. They are called okay. ELMS, stands for edge localized modes. And in particular, uh, you may be aware, or I think anyways, is something interesting to check on the internet. Um, there are new experiments that they are, they are designing, for instance, Spark uh, at MIT, but also must upgrade. And these machines will have a magnetic configuration that is called double null or quasi double null. Mm -hmm. So basically there are two X points at the bottom at, at the top of the machine. What is, what was, I mean, humbly speaking, but what was a little bit missing was how does the power released by the plasma during these elms, during these instabilities get deposited in these walls according to this magnetic configuration. Okay, because you want to deposit the power in a specific location, right? Um, uh, yeah, ideally, yes. But we still so don't most know of the power, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. But in order to properly design a future machine, you really mm -hmm. have to understand how much and where this power is deposited. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And funny yeah. enough, uh, my, my first work here, my first paper, actually, I did the analysis on shots that were from 2009, 2010. And we discovered that a significant fraction of that power goes to a very unexpected region of the machine. Mm -hmm. Bottom line. And, and is, it, is it this beneficial uh, or not? Uh... Well, how can I say? It's good to know. <laughs> it's, good to, yeah. it's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay and but again honestly you know i i i'm very much unaware of the engineering part of the material side we, we yeah it's a, it's physics, a huge so, challenge uh, yeah, you know yeah. so yeah basically we provide the experimental evidence and some theory but then it's up to the engineers to develop you know the materials uh, and all that stuff that is way beyond the scope of our research but it's very important, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a bit interested also in that aspect. You say that, uh, I guess, the heat, the, the heat that comes out from the elms is definitely, it's not just straight transport direct to the same, let's say, footprint on these on the strike wow. points in the diverter. And so this is what you're really looking at. You're trying to see how how that changes as the elms if not just evolve but maybe also different types of elms right exactly yes thank okay. you i mean aaron you exactly got the point yeah okay, okay. and that that's, i think that's very interesting because it is sort of an assumption we don't know how really the elms impact that yeah okay because, and do you, you know so no go go for it go for it i mean it's a highly non-linear process so it's very complicated also to properly simulate those uh, those behaviors and also you know to mm -hmm. experimentally evaluate what's going on you need the really cutting edge diagnostics that we are lucky yeah. enough to have here at d3d okay so okay we... but uh, i'm asking from uh, you know from uh, another field uh, perspective so is it well known what triggers these uh, type of instabilities well, there is not? a well-established theory that dates back around 2000, 2004, is this peeling ballooning instability where basically there is an interplay between the toroidal current and the uh, gradient of the plasma pressure at the pedestal. Mm. The pedestal is a location basically between the core and the very outer part that is called the scrape-off layer. Mm -hmm. So 
the, the gradient of the plasma pressure in that region together with the current that uh, the toroidal current that there is in the plasma um, gives rise to this dynamic and pretty complex equilibria, but that we, that we can study. So in theory, we can predict the type of elm that you are expecting according to these parameters. This is a very, very simple words, of course, but uh, this theory I believe is fairly well established, but the transport of the L in the scrape of layer region and in the diverter, the diverter is the region at the bottom of the machine. Mm -hmm. It's still not, not fully unknown, but it's very much work in progress. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious then if, if you know there is uh, any theoretical considerations for how the transport works in that region or i mean there's always the the two-point model which is very simplified there's always uh, i think someone was wanted to run like gyrokinetics and simulations to get the radial transport and all this sorts of stuff but i think the question that i have to you mostly is since your work is based mostly on experimental stuff do you find that what people say from theoretical considerations is what you see in the device or are they often very different? I, I would say the order zero, they are correct. At least on a qualitative level, indeed. So to, to give a, like, a, um, let's see, a straightforward example, something relatively simple. If we imagine the ELM, being these filaments, these big fat filaments that eject in the outer part of the plasma and that travel following magnetic feed lines all the way to the bottom. This simple model is not reproduced by experiments, basically never. Sometimes with attachment, but that's another story. But theory says that uh, these filaments actually can um, undergo fragmentation is called. So you basically generate smaller filaments with higher radial velocity, yet carrying a lot of power. And those filaments can indeed be deposited in regions far from where you would expect the majority of the heat flux, which, is, which are the strike points. And we observe this consistently in our, in our measurements and in our analysis. And recently my boss hired a very talented uh, kid master student from France, and he's doing simulations with a code called BOUT++ that takes into account the nonlinear parts of the ELM evolution, which is extremely important, you know, at least to have some sort of theoretical model to compare our data with. Hopefully okay. finding, you know. So this is like kinetic codes, uh, I think massively parallelized probably. Uh, How do you yeah, capture this? I I'm not an expert about, okay. about plus plus, honestly. What they do in, so I, of course, I focus on experiment, but now I'm also validating uh, a, a code that is being used at ITER. It's uh -huh. relatively crude yet great, I think. It's called the PLM, which stands for Parallel Loss Model. It basically, given some inputs, it can produce the, uh, the heat flux the energy flux produced by a, by a single ELM event only due to parallel transport, which simplifies mm -hmm. the problem very much make, and makes it computationally very cheap, very fast, very light. And, you know, the, the bulk of it is being validated successfully. That works great. However, it does underpredict a good 30, 40% of the total power that we measure. And that power is deposited in regions that are not expected. Mm -hmm. And so in order to address that, we, did, we need um, more sophisticated codes like this BOUT++ thing. Okay, I have a more general question actually, because uh, you mentioned before uh, like uh, different machines, right? That are built around the world. At MIT in uh, UK as well, and uh, your place. 
D3D and so on. And uh, it seems to me all these different machines are based on different magnetic configuration. So is there something that you think is really promising uh, in the field or that can lead to a breakthrough? Um, yeah, so, well, you know, I'm not an expert of the core of the plasma, Aaron is, mm -hmm. but for what concerns, you know, the scrape of layer and the, and the diverter stuff, I do think that, uh, you know, a double null is a, a prom promising way to go, simply because uh, your, your power flux is shared among more area of the walls. So that must be beneficial for the, you know, for the survival of the machine walls themselves. Another thing that we are, not we as a group, but here at D3D we are studying is this concept called um, small angle slot diverter. So in, in, instead of having a relatively open diverter where the magnetic field lines intersect the material, you have it closed like a little box open only in on one side. And that is basically used to maintain a high enough neutral pressure inside this box. And therefore the heat loads expected in, on, the, on the surface of the, on the materials are lower. That though has implication with confinement and other issues because there is the leakage of these neutrals and all kinds of stuff. I mean, but but I think that- That's very similar to like the, the baffles methodology or the, the vapor box even for the, if you study the liquid yeah, metals. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. But liquid okay. metals, if I may, it's a little bit, you know, further. Uh, Too far out there. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah, you know, yeah. I was, I, so I was going to say Luca's question was very, very tough to answer. <laughs> Do you believe yeah, but, that there are a breakthrough? Everyone believes there's a breakthrough coming, right? <laughs> yeah, true. But I mean, I'm talking about uh, someone outside of the field. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I see all these uh, Stellarator and then at MIT, they're trying much higher magnetic fields, right? And then ITER, I think it's even, even different. Uh, and, yeah, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Crazy. It seems that uh, this affects, uh, as you said, uh, all, all the transport uh, of charged particles, right? It can be anomalous transport, all the instabilities and so on. And uh, also the physics probably is not well known, uh, right? When you are dealing with turbulent uh, transport. Yeah. But this, yeah. this, is, this is what I'm curious about, actually, that you mentioned this, this guy doing the boat plus, plus modeling. It's... It seems like in order to capture these, these very complicated and nonlinear effects, you need to start using more and more complex codes. And it comes, I would think that it comes to a point where in order to make a fully predictive model for like the future design of, of fusion power plants, if you're gonna need to run such complicated models, it's it makes it hard. It's faster so, to build another machine. Uh, it, exactly, right? At this point, it's the just... experiment. <laughs> so do you, do, you, do you feel that it's going that way, that it's sort of, um, there are so many minor, not minor, that they're, they're, they are large effects, but they all add up to a point where there is no replacement for just building a physical machine to test it. Yeah, well, that's a very good question. So, I mean, personally, I think that being pragmatic is a good thing to do. To, to give a, you know, a real life example, very much related to what we already discussed. Mm -hmm. On one hand, you have complicated codes, let's say about plus plus to study L dynamics. On the other hand, you have this simpler 1D fluid code, this parallel loss model. If we think what do engineers care most in a, a scenario of a power load deposition? Is the peak, is the location where the heat loads is at its maximum. This 1D fluid code can reproduce that peak fairly accurately, which is great news. So I would say to be hardcore pragmatic, boom, that's fine. That's what you need. Let's go for it. However, for a more complete and also long-term type of uh, tokamak development, I think it's very important to understand 
as much as we can about these instabilities because those Alps can really be, you know, the, you know, the go or no go thing. Mm -hmm. They are very delicate. Also on, on that regard, there is that also links with Luca's question. There is this relatively new regime called grassy Alps regime, okay. where instead of having these low frequency, huge uh, Alps called type one, you have these very high frequency and way smaller Alps. The term is grassy, I believe it comes from, you know, like the grass, like mm -hmm. you have all these little peaks and that can actually exhaust the power and the ash from, from the tokamak without posing any, any serious concern to the, to the, to the machine walls. However, to, to get to that regime and to maintain and control it is not that straightforward, of course, mm -hmm. but lots of studies are being, uh, being done in that direction. And especially it seems to be uh, easier to achieve in quasi double null configuration, which also links again to what we discussed a couple of minutes ago about this double X point configuration stuff. But uh, that was an um, interesting question because it makes me think also where uh, my community or low temperature plasma people is, is going. That uh, I think we are, we are some, some years uh, lagging behind the fusion community in some aspects, but I see already a lot of people pushing towards 3D models, so highly parallelized models. And, I would argue that, uh, yes, this is a direction where we should go, but uh, we should always uh, think that, uh, you know, in a model, there are some assumptions that maybe are not always applicable to your case, but still, if you use that simplified model, you can learn something out of it. So sometimes we do 0D or 1D model, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you're, you're familiar, Renato. And, um, maybe your system is not, uh, cannot be described by 0D, but we can uh, learn something out of it. And I think there it's important that in physics we or engineering uh, that that we we still have this level of simplification at the end. So not everything at first from first principles. Word, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you are right. You are right. But uh, Renato, so you said you changed a bit uh, the topic of your uh, PhD, right? When you moved from PhD to postdoc. Yeah. So in in which respect? So what were you doing during PhD that is different? Um, well, I was doing the PhD at different institute with you guys, where yeah. there is a very nice uh, linear plasma machine. Uh, you know, to be not kind, but uh, I mean, we may define it as a, a diverter simulator. The diverter is the part where uh, is the region of the walls where magnetic field lines intersect. The, the walls themselves. And therefore is where plasma surface interactions would occur. So Magnum PSI is a fantastic and I think unique in the world to study the material aspect, the material sciences aspect of these plasma surface interaction studies. However, in my PhD, I focused to what occurs right before the plasma reaches the, the plate, the, the target, let's say. In particular, I focused on plasma neutrals interactions and how can this be beneficial or not to the uh, to the power loads to this to this target okay. it was very much plasma chemistry oriented so now that you compare uh, uh, your work on linear machine and your work on tokamaks what you find as different so <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe I don't. I don't want to enter into political. Uh, no, 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 but no. Uh, so, do you think this work on linear machine can also be beneficial? Can give me information also for studying on this uh, power exhaust into the vertus or tokamas? Or is this really too much of a simplification? I think they can be extremely important. Mm -hmm. Similarly to what. What you, Luca, just mentioned about starting with a simple scenario before yeah. trying to build, uh, you know, the castle. Uh, linear machines can be can be great. However, on a personal level, I do think that the fusion community doesn't really properly pay attention to what is being studied in linear machines in terms of plasma physics, not material sciences. 
Okay. Right. Okay. Because from from the material science point of view, is perfect. There is a lot. Uh, there is a lot to learn. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Material science is the way to go. But also from the plasma physics aspects, actually, especially in the last part of the of the magnetic flux surface of the last part, let's say, of the plasma path from the outer scrape okay. of layer to the diverter. Because what happens in the very vicinity of the plate is very important, and that can really be a game changer in in the survival the survival of uh, of your walls, you know. And you know, linear machines are way easier to run. Uh, the diagnostic accessibility is basically great, mm -hmm. so you can really properly pinpoint uh, all the parameters and so basically you have a very well defined and controlled scenario which is which can also be great for validating models yeah, that true. can then be applied in a more complex uh, tokamak type of thing true true that's a good answer i think <laughs> yeah maybe maybe i would like to ask just from your experience renato like in what sense in that region like i'm not much of a plasma surface interaction kind of person, but maybe your work delves into it. Like what in there is important in terms of the survivability of the diverter plates? Thanks for the question. Well, in order to, to reply to that, we cannot not mention plasma detachment. So plasma detachment in, in very simple words, in few words, is a scenario that you develop in the diverter, that now we know what the diverter is, where basically your incoming plasma, this plasma carries a lot of ions, electrons, high power. It's bad for the, it's bad for the walls, especially if we think for long pulses, like long operations. What does, so attachment works in the sense that it cools down significantly this incoming plasma and therefore what you get at the end is a tolerable particle and heat flux to your target now, correct me if i'm in, wrong so, sorry not if i interrupt so this detachment is achieved by seeding impurities or by other means there are different ways you can increase the density at the pedestal with a density ramp you can also see the impurities that are highly radiative, like nitrogen and neon. Mm -hmm. Why? Because those impurities leads to this plasma to radiate, so to lose a lot of yeah. power throughout this, its path towards the diverter. And when the temperature is low enough, which this connects to Aaron's question, when the temperature is low enough and you have some neutrals, so non-charged particles in front of this of this target, so-called recombination mechanisms occur. So you basically convert ions that leads, of course, a potential into neutrals. First, these neutrals do not follow the magnetic field lines. So you can spread over, spread this power over a larger surface area, therefore diminishing the peak load. Mm -hmm. As long as they don't enter the core, I think, right? Because uh, yeah, otherwise they yeah. get ionized and uh, it's uh, all of a mess. Yeah, they can, uh, yes, indeed. They can, uh, what's the, like they say, contaminate the core. You don't want these impurities or too many neutrals goes up, as Aaron well knows, of course. And there is also another thing called the MARF or MARFE in Italian, which is basically when your X point starts to radiate too much you basically end up having a disruption or let's say your plasma will never do fusion. I mean, it's completely unacceptable. So it's, it's very tricky. So then these linear, the these linear machines are, uh, can help study that detachment behavior, you think? Yes, really? not the, so it's important here to make a point. Hmm. Linear machines can be fantastic to study what occurs in the last part of the plasma path from the outer mid plane to the target. So when recombination becomes dominant, but linear machines are not, I mean, you, you cannot study the wall detachment phenomenon in a linear machine. That would be, I think it's also out of the scope 
there are so many processes that goes on already in this recombination region that we don't know exactly that this already gives uh, linear machines, uh, you know, uh, an important role in my opinion. But again, this role, I don't think it's well enough uh, recognized by, by the community, especially by the Tokamak community. Okay. Okay. I think, yeah, the delineation between the diverter configuration in the Tokamak and the linear plasma is hard to define. And maybe that's why the community just sort of says, okay, we don't worry about that. And we worry only about the diverter configuration. But I think if you're able to, to clearly separate where the two devices are at least somewhat identical in their physics, then you can more easily target you know, types of studies or specific phenomenon to study in, a, in the linear machines. And I think that that might be one way to, to help bring the focus back a little bit to linear machines and their capabilities. Yeah, yeah I mean, totally, I fully agree. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, again, somewhat uh, linking to what we were discussing before about this having a pragmatic approach. It's also true that uh, if something is working in a tokamak and detachment is being achieved and everything works fine, all, even if you don't exactly know the fundamental physics behind it, but it is working, you know, fuck it, let's go for it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's right. an engineering I mean, approach. Right. Engineering approach. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we we ideally we should make fusion soon. So of course, understanding fundamental processes is great and very important in the long term. But in the short term, I also think that this engineeristic approach is also a nice way to go. You know, I mean, it yeah, works yeah. like this. And by, by the way, did you find some differences uh, in doing research in the US uh, with respect to Europe? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do you care to elaborate? I would be yeah. curious. Yeah. Now, well, I mean, I think that uh, the Netherlands and differ also is a special place because, you know, lots of outstanding things get done. We, I mean, we, you guys publish a lot of important things and it's a one, it's a magic place, you know, said so the uh, life work balance is very much a Dutch style thing, which is very, you know, loose. You take your time, you do, you know, you see what I mean? There is a lot of uh, calm. Freedom. Freedom. Yeah, freedom. You can manage yeah. yourself uh, as you want. Yeah, I experienced also during my PhD. Yeah, exactly. I mean, here as well, but in, you know, I work for a university, so we are lucky enough to have somehow some sort of the same, uh, of the same luck. But in general, here, in a good way, I'm saying, but there is a lot of competition. Competi competitivity here is high. I mean, to, 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 to become staff, you mean, uh, and to, yeah, to have a position yeah. inside the institute? Yeah. And yeah, tr yeah. Trust me, I know I went the other way. Yeah, that's <laughs> so true. That's true. I started right. there that's and true. I moved to Europe. So I, yeah, one I get what you things, mean. I know exactly. Yeah, what you man. Mean. One of the first things that my boss told me when I started my postdoc here is like, you know, uh, do great or go home. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, okay, cool, okay, but what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> but as everything, you know, we are, you know, I think that routine is something that we all develop. Mm -hmm. If you, if this, let's call it hard work, but, you know, if you love what you do, it's not really so yeah, hard yeah, work, yeah. but yeah. if you are yeah. consistent in your productivity, a good thing about here in the US is that uh, they will keep you. They will keep you there. There is meritocracy is sky high here. Is top as I have ever seen. You know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So and I think you know, that, that yeah, that also pushes the competition higher, right? If you see that the rewards really only go to the people who perform the best, that puts pressure on yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah. 
to, yeah. to be there, right? To get that. Yeah. And I think and don't that- Don't we need a little bit of rational, Aaron, in uh, scientific research? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah but Especially healthy, in what we do, yeah. The healthy yeah. pressure, I mean, you know, the healthy um, enthusiasm, the healthy exactly, driving exactly. force yeah. to do no, a better there, job. Absolutely. Know. There's a degree, you know, some, some you know, competitive, friendly competition is always nice because then you can always say, ha, I beat you, you know, I got you. But, <laughs> but at the same time, it's not... Uh, it should not progress to the point where it's overwhelming, you know, or, or toxic. Yeah, true, 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 true. Then, Renato, so we were saying, so I, I also experience myself, you know, and uh, I'm also driven by enthusiasm when I do research and so on by interest also to solve some problems. But sometimes there are also for me moments of frustration because uh, I don't know, because I cannot solve this problem immediately. Maybe I want to solve it. I want to have the results. And how you deal with it? Because on the one hand, you have pressure to get results because you want uh, to get a position maybe there or you want to become a sort of, you know, a, a established person in, in your field. And uh, on the other end, uh, you have to deal with these uh, challenges in research, right? So I saw yeah. you were always enthusiastic of what you were doing. So can you tell us something about that? So you mean how to deal how, how, how did you this? deal with it? Uh... Well, now, now I <laughs> I take into account that uh, one day a month I will be willing to leave everything and go to Naples and work in a pizzeria for the rest of my life <laughs> and chilling in Italy and staying there. <laughs> for the rest, uh, I I think it's it's very much also a matter of the colleagues that you have uh, surrounding you. As uh, also Aaron was mentioning, like if you are in a, let's say, toxic environment, maybe it's a yeah. tough word, but you can have all the enthusiasm you want, but uh, you may eventually end up hating what you're doing. And I think that to do cool stuff in science, you really have to like a lot. Like you, you like, it's not even like, at this point, I think at our, you know, postdocs after a PhD, basically, I don't even think that you need a supervisor that pushes you to improve what you're doing. No, you it need to have the passion. Uh, exactly. by yourself, like saying, yeah. you know, let me read this another time better. So, and then maybe, you know, that's another breakthrough. And so it may take a little bit more time to write your paper and publish your research, but you tend to, to make the best out of it according to your potentials yeah 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 no because uh, i don't know talking also with with younger people it seems to me that there, there are a lot of people even even very good you know very good students but they are a bit yeah. afraid uh, of uh, pursuing this career in research because there are a lot of unknowns right so they say okay if i go to industry for example uh, i can get a job uh, much uh, easily and uh, I know what I have to do in order to progress in my career. Whereas in research, uh, you don't know most of the time. So do, do, do you think uh, we should be so, so much afraid or you, you think uh, still uh, the, the path is worth? <laughs> I think it's the best thing ever happened to me. <laughs> it's okay. beyond worth, it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, for, uh, uh, more stability, uh, maybe go to industry is also nice, but this is my very personal and therefore limited point of view. I think that the vast majority of technical works in industries are extremely boring. Like what the fuck? It's maybe, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a, mean, like every day you have the same yeah, task probably, I don't know. But even, you know, you have to optimize a product uh, to be more sellable or I, I don't want to care about that ever, you know. Well, yeah, it depends, it depends what great. you like, exactly. Yeah, yeah because you, you basically can never sit back. You can never, uh, I mean, you can relax. We do relax often, but you are, there is always something new to be addressed and to be, you know, pursued. While it's not the case in industry, on the other hand, you know, each, each one of us has different uh, background and personal uh, 
histories, maybe a super talented uh, physicist needs to make good money right after the bachelor's or right after a master's degree, that's a very good call to go to, go to industry and, uh, and make uh, good bucks straight okay. out of uh, university. But I think that if one likes what is studying and has the, the motivation to continue that, it's, it's a relatively easy path, honestly. I don't, I really cannot see all these gigantic, massive obstacles. They are not really there, I think. So do you, do you see that research is sort of a, an outlet for creativity in a way, right? Because there is so Not much really. new going on and you can always try something else. There, you have really an open book in front of you, right? Do you, do you see it as that? Or is it more of just like you, for you, more of a technical thing? Like, I want to know what's happening. Um, how do you see research? I think the former completely completely to make it like a personal example simple one at the beginning of my postdoc here i was supposed to uh, to write a quick paper like uh, in within the first three to six months just doing some analysis of some uh, you know diagnostic data and get, take out the paper but doing that analysis we saw interesting stuff that were not expected so we investigated further that and while investigating that we found other unknown aspects of the similar topic of the same topic basically and so that basically it's a never-ending process and you need to be creative even to to highlight what is new because it's not always like you know in front of your face like a super new strange perfect results no you have to dig but if you dig properly and if you know how to identify what is not expected, meaning that you did your homework also, though, that you studied what you had to study, it's never ending. That's why it's so beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the main difference between the industry stuff. We are talking, we are generalizing. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. of course. For of me, course. I, I don't know what you think, guys. Um, just comparing, uh, for example, art and uh, a bit more scientific or technical field, I think in, in our field, it's true that I, I agree with you, Renato. I think it's very creative because you have different problems or challenges and you have to think a way how to solve it. And people, maybe you're the first one trying to tackle this problem, right? So it is very exciting. So you have to come up with a new idea. So it's very creative, but probably in our field, you need a, a lot of uh, background before start seeing these, uh, these uh, interesting problems. You know what I mean? So, yes, I mean, I, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to deal with a lot of study of books. Uh, style. I mean, doing also a bit more school or elementary stuff before arriving at that level, right? Whereas in the art, maybe, maybe I'm, <laughs> I'm not an artist, so <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Whereas in the art, uh, you can paint something. And <laughs> ah, Luca, you know, I, I, I would like to hug you now because uh, I really uh, agree with you 100%. And I discovered recently, like in the last year or two, that I was wrong. What, what do I mean? Let's make an example. Like, uh, I, uh, let's say interior design, right? To me, is a couch. Maybe okay. it's fancy. Let's try to... <laughs> no, no, maybe it's fancy, you know, with some detail. Yeah. But, uh, but maybe if a... people doing uh, design of interior couches want to sponsor this channel, I mean, uh, <laughs> for me, <laughs> I like really much. I, I also need a new couch. So, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, or even, let's say, more like even in the contemporary art world the visual art world of contemporary art. Lots of things to me make little sense, or at least I really cannot extract any beauty or any novelty about it. Said so, lots of my friends here in San Diego are in the art world, not into science. Okay. But if you have an artistic background and you know what you are looking at, you can extract so many informations, background on the artist, uh, references really to other artists or to other 
periods of history characterized by a certain type of art. So bottom line, look, I agree with you because I, I have the same mindset, but I think we are both wrong. Yeah, true, true. That's true. I, I never thought about that because I thought, uh, okay, science is a sort of a collective uh, idea, right? So it's creative, but you have to build on top of what has been done before. You cannot arrive and have a new disruptive idea without yeah. knowing what has been done, right? It's, yes. it's crazy. I thought, okay, art, uh, you can come here and uh, being a Picasso. And, but it's not completely true because you need yeah. also to know and you need yeah. to have... Uh, yeah, very that's true, much, that's true. Very much. It's, you know, also in the music, I think it's like that, right? Uh, yeah, in the music, indeed, although now it is a trap uh, shit. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Let's say, yeah, but in the actual music, indeed, it's the same thing, you know, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So there are similarities in that sense. Yeah, yeah, very, very much. Yeah, I very, think for the, major, for the majority of people, it's going to be that way, that you have to study a lot what has come before you and really immerse yourself in that world. And then maybe you can make something after, with, after you've gained all the knowledge. Mm -hmm. But I mean, okay, there's always some people who are just somehow geniuses and they just yeah. bam, right? But that's that, a... That, a rarity. In every field. Yeah, and exactly. That's in every field also. Yeah. But it's a rarity for the majority but, 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 of people. What, what do you think? Way. So do you, do you believe actually in genius? Uh, because um, I think, uh, you know, I, yeah. I don't know what I think about it because um, I, I, I don't believe uh, very much into like that you, you, someone is born with a specific talent uh, ah. in a specific field. I think if you put enough effort and time, you can achieve um, good results. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. The genius part, I don't know. I'm not an anthropologist. Or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Then it's... But uh, I, I don't know. It's also, you know, it's about uh, language, definition of genius. What does it mean? Yeah, you exactly. Know, it's vague. I don't, I don't know. Well, like in some, in some ways, it's not pure genius because it's also possible especially in scientific fields that you become so closed that you everybody in the field thinks a certain way and sometimes it takes someone who is from the outside to come in and reintroduce fresh ideas fresh yeah, ways of yeah. looking at things and you could see those people if you're too narrow-minded as geniuses because they're they where did this idea come from how did you think about this mm -hmm. but actually you know they just have a different background they just yeah. come from a different place and think a little differently than you but that doesn't it doesn't make them like super immediately super high level but their ideas are introducing important things important yeah, yeah. differences so i think that is very important in the community yeah. to encourage yeah. people from all places to come and and try you know yeah, yeah. maybe Actually, it doesn't work yeah. but you know this is interesting because i had a similar conversation with some colleagues here right and uh, we were discussing about uh, is it important you know in order to have a, a career in research you know so a lot of people say you have to focus on one topic and become the expert of that topic without looking too much around right and then you are the expert of the you know of uh, power exhausting tokamaks the world leader whatever uh, other people say that uh, we need these um, um, sort of influence from other fields right so you have a lot of inputs from other fields and then you can get uh, ideas that you bring from one field to another as you were saying Aaron. So yeah. what do you think, uh, Renato? Do you think that uh, having inputs also from uh, different fields is beneficial to become a researcher or is it better to focus on one topic uh, based on your experience? I think uh, <clears throat> that's a very nice question, you know? I think so, there's not a unique answer probably, right? So, yeah. So yeah. of course, having a broad perspective is, is very important in order to be able to think out of the box, which is basically what Aaron was saying. Uh, said so, you know, to study something like plasma physics mm -hmm. and being also familiar with uh, an, another completely different topic that may also be 
related, but it's very difficult. Yeah, if you now start doing biology, is <laughs> right. It's very difficult. So that's why I think that the the this thinking out of the box thing can indeed be coming from a genius-minded type of individual, but besides that, also a very super hardcore educated individual. Because yeah. you know. <laughs> You, you have laws to follow, basically. And so, ideally, yes. On the other hand, to, to make different worlds to communicate, let's say plasma chemistry and uh, nuclear fusion, it's also very difficult, even like logistically. Where do you make them meet? How, who, who chairs that? Who, because competencies are so different that they may, there may be very little common ground to have fruitful discussions. It's very tricky, it's difficult. I was lucky during my PhD having uh, Ivo as a supervisor because he had this very broad thinking about this very specific and complicated problem, but indeed uh, we gave uh, a more plasma chemistry approach, although it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah purely in the field of plasma physics. Okay, okay. So you think uh, there will be a sort of need uh, of people also in fusion uh, with um, a sort of um, competencies that are at the edge between different fields uh, or, uh, or uh, should yeah, we totally. focus? No, no. So totally. do you think it's, it's a trend that is uh, ongoing or uh, is it too far in the future? No, I think it's, uh, it's happening now. To some extent, like um, you know, a disruption person that is in contact with a writer from Germany, I think that is a great you know collision radiative uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. modeler and so on. That's already very nice and promising. You see what I mean? Like two topics that, as a first glance, appear to be so distant, mm -hmm. actually share a lot of fundamental physics in common. And so it's wonderful to see how one field can help each other and vice versa, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, but it's true, not true. a straightforward thing. Again, true, true. It's, it's, it's not uh, trivial. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting because uh, it reminds me that uh, in, like if, in this channel, like months ago, I had this uh, discussion with uh, Savino Longo as a professor in Bari and yeah. he always said the same because he's always jumping from I don't know chemistry to biology to physics uh, mathematics whatever and he's like I like you know all these uh, sort of having ideas bring it from one uh, you know field to another <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but he said uh, in Italy in Italy is also not well received by all the scientific community right because oh, they prefer to be, you are the expert of this topic, you're the expert of plasma physics, right? So why yeah. are you thinking about astrobiology? <laughs> wow. Yeah, but you know, I mean, uh, Prof. Savino Longo is also a living legend. <laughs> you know, I mean, those are rare cases, uh, in my opinion, like ah, genius type of, uh, type of thing, you know? It's very uncommon <laughs> to be at yeah, that yeah. level and jumping around at that level of competence, I think is outstanding and almost unique, right? At the same time, I, I would I would ask if you think it should be encouraged to some level in, in either the education or in the way we do research, or do you think that it is better to just get your focus, get your, your, your specialization in a way, and then maybe after that you, you branch yeah. out? Yeah, I would consider the latter that you propose. So you first solve a difficult problem, very specific. In order to understand the problem and go in deep in there, you have to study lots of fundamental aspects of that problem, which are for sure connected with other fields. After you develop, you know, the, also the confidence, but the tools to solve that problem, let's say your PhD path, Mm -hmm. then you can start build a more, let's say, broad and open vision of the problem that is above the little problem you were working on. And then maybe one day you can go further above. And that's why I think, you know, 
that's what big guys in our field do. Which I think yeah, is I think that's the most meaningful also, because we should not give a message that, uh, you know, you, you can think about uh, doing everything. Right. So I think in order to have a career and so on, and also for your name to be known by the community, you need to focus on a specific area because it's, you know, knowledge yeah. is so broad. There are so many yeah. different topics. Yeah, and then um, starting you can. That. Yeah, I think I agree with with you. Yeah, at least starting from a very specific point, and then you so. move upwards, or yeah, backwards to have a larger perspective in time. But yeah. at, at the beginning, it it should be very specific. I think. Okay, so I want to conclude with a, a couple of more uh, questions. So first, first of all, uh, it's very interesting because we are from the same uh, town, right? In Italy, yeah. Bassano del Grappa. Bassano. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of people, you know, that uh, started there. It's, it's quite surprising, you know, then, then they start a field uh, in uh, plasma physics or all, other fields, uh, right? Uh, or, or music or uh, whatever. And do you think, uh, what do you think about the, the environment in Bassano? Was that important for you to, to grow up? <laughs> <laughs> for your career <laughs> do you miss Bassano actually uh, sometimes yeah yeah I miss the people there of course and uh, I mean Bassano you know Bassano gave us a huge alcohol tolerance for sure very important, very important <laughs> I was gonna say yeah also very important you know in conferences or anything you know because uh, the more you can you know maintain your cool <laughs> The more you can have meaningful conversations with legends in the game that are just chilling at the bar and so funny enough but i really think that uh, <laughs> that matters in a very little extent of course i think that you know yeah bassano is a kind of a strange place man. there is it's on, very on interesting end... because uh, we, we are both from a small town right so moving yeah. from bassano to san diego for example <laughs> how was that is that shocking for you or uh... yeah. No, no, zero shocking, actually. But um, yeah, there are zero similarities. There is not course, a yeah. single thing that they can, uh, although I found a place here that sells the Aqua di Cedro. Anyways, this is just a parenthesis for <laughs> me and Luca. Uh, so zero similarities. On the other hand, though, I think that Bassano, despite the dimension, has always had, uh, I pretty vibrant subcultural so, uh, scene yeah. in there from the techno scene, the rock scene, that's the hip hop scene, yeah. the art scene. That's true, that's true. It's, it's quite, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So remember, uh, on, on yeah. the other, well, to be frank though, it also has a lot of bigotry and uh, lots of people are very conservative and, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It has, let's say, in this sense, it has, in that little place, there are lots of different things that normally would characterize the bigger city. And That's true. There, if you have a specific that. interest, you can find, most likely, even if it is a small town, you can find people with uh, your similar interest. I remember yes. I was taking the train. We have the group of this bunch of people doing physics and every morning take the train from Bassano to Padova, right? And back <laughs> for five years. <laughs> And so on, but That's if you amazing, do music, yeah. uh, you can find people uh, and have a band. Uh, it's uh, quite easy, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it is cute. It's cute. I would never live there now, though. Never. No, no. Of course, it's uh, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. and then the second question is that. Uh, so, what about uh, these? Uh, this fusion, because here we have a bet among uh, friends about uh, ether. <laughs> about this q equals 10 of oh, ether yeah yeah luca yeah. you're gonna so, always what, what do you I think? think because i think <laughs> <laughs> i mean of course uh, i come from low temperature plasma so i'm the least expert here in the field but i think it will be really challenging to reach that goal for ether in my opinion what do you think about it and uh, do you, when do you see a commercial fusion that will be available i mean 2080. Okay. 80. Okay. Yeah. But that's and that's not bad. I mean, it's better than yeah. never. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Some people <laughs> say never. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, all due respect, but uh, 
fuck them. I mean, <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. I mean, but, uh, you know, this eater thing, it's way above, beyond uh, my... My really complete understanding of this huge, huge thing. From a little side, though, I think that even if this Q equals 10 is not going to be reached, so many, so many super important aspects will yeah. be better understood with it. So it is still very much worth to be done that for the Q equals 10. We, who, who can know? Now, I think nobody can actually know. You can be more, um, you know, uh, pessimistic or optimistic. You can have a gut feeling, but we really don't know. Okay. Okay. Well, so there is a lot of research to do. So with this, uh, thank you very much, Renato, uh, for uh, your time. It was really pleasant to talk with you. And uh, thank you, Aaron, as well, for uh, supporting uh, this conversation, giving more fusion insights. And... um, Oh, it was great to be here and see Renato again. So this is yes, and yeah, I, had, I had also nice laugh and, and so on. Thank and you, I, I hope I hope to have to, to have a chat with you soon again. Anytime. And uh, good luck with your life and your research in San Diego, Renato, and see you, you soon too. in Bassano, maybe. You too. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Take care, okay. guys. Bye, bye, bye.